are on the record. Welcome to Legendary Lawyers of Texas. This podcast is dedicated to gathering some history and stories from some legendary lawyers in Texas. We're glad you made a way to find us. This podcast is hosted by me, Fred Jones, and also by Kevin Young. We are both lawyers here in San Antonio, Texas, and we're pretty excited about what we're doing. Stay tuned. Well, let's get right to our talk today. We're here today with A.J. Holman, Jr. He goes by John. Uh, John has been a lawyer in South Texas for six decades. That's six oh sixty years this year, I believe. And he started his first job in 1961 as an assistant district attorney in the office of the Bear County Criminal District Attorney. John uh, tried 50 jury trials in two and a half years. Back in those days, it's a pretty amazing trial docket for a new lawyer. Fred, I don't, how can that possibly be true? I, I want some confirmation of that today, but that is amazing. I'm, I'm excited uh, that you got John to come with us today. Looking forward to this conversation. And I think a lot of, uh, a lot of people around here and especially lawyers will be interested in, in some of John's stories and some of the great things he's done over the years. I know John has been a, a part of our organization, the ABOTA, for a long, long time. Uh, which really speaks to kind of his his skill and his professionalism. So um, looking forward to it today. Great. Well, hey, John, can you tell us a little bit about the, those first two and a half years in, uh, in the DA's office? Well, I was hired by Hippo Garcia, who later became a state judge and then a federal judge. And uh, the I worked in the county courts of law store now trying DWI cases and and sometimes back to back in the in the course of a week I would try two or three cases. John, how'd you, how'd you get the job to begin with? How'd you decide you wanted to be a, in the DA's office? Well, I knew I needed experience. I knew that the DA's office would be a good place for me to get trial experience without having to expose my clients to an, an inexperienced lawyer otherwise. Yeah. And uh, sure enough, I got it. And, and when you went, walked into that office, they threw you to the walls. They really did. What, what year was that? What year did you start? 1961. And uh, so for two and a half years, I was there. The last year, I was the uh, lead prosecutor in the 175th District Court. And I met some of the best lawyers in the state. Wow. Were you, uh, were you married at that time? Yes, I was. Uh, I got married in the last year of my law school. I had two years of military service and then uh, took off three days and went to work. Hmm. <laughs> well, how do, how, do you, uh, how do you stay married for 60 years and be such an accomplished lawyer? Those don't always go together. Well, I'll tell you what, she's a patient woman. <laughs> and uh, there were times when uh, I was not at home for supper 
doing working down at the office. She understood the love that I had for the profession. And she always encouraged me to do what I needed to do. You have to be married to an exceptional woman for that to happen. Cheers to both of you. That That's a great accomplishment. And have you noticed, John, in our profession, it, it does seem difficult to strike that right balance between being a, a good spouse and a good lawyer. We seem to have a lot of breakups and divorces in our profession. That's true. And um, I guess I have to consider myself blessed. Hmm. Well, they, they say that the the law is a jealous mistress. And uh, so what would you, uh, what would you have for us in terms of advice about uh, how a young lawyer coming into the practice would, would be able to find the right balance between uh, his professional, his or her professional responsibilities to their clients and uh, keeping, keeping in shape and that sort of thing, but also having time, with your significant other, your spouse, or your or your children. Well, uh, incidentally, we ended up uh, we could not have children of our own, but we ended up with two adopted children, and that was the best decision I probably ever made that we ever made jointly between ourselves. Hmm. And uh, these two children who became such an important part of our lives. Hmm. Well. That's great. And I, I, I commend you for that. You're, that's, a, that's a great example for, for all of us. Let me, let me switch gears for a second, uh, John, because I'm, I'm really interested in, in how, the, how the law practice looked back in 1961. Um, you know, we're, we're just finishing two years of Zoom court here. And, you know, we're, we're in December 2021 as we do this interview. We've just spent two years basically practicing law by Zoom. Could you ever have even imagined anything like that? No, I had not any concept whatsoever of what Zoom was until it happened. And it's, I think, worked amazingly well. And uh, I'm happy to be a part of it. Well, tell me about, um, tell me about 1961 when you started and you're just getting into the uh, into the courthouse. Um, you know what, what? What? What's what's the major differences that you that you could think of um, between now and back then with judges or or opposing counsel or what witnesses or whatever it might be? What What are some of the big differences? Well, you know, I. Um... I guess I haven't noticed that much in the way of differences. Of course, Zoom is definitely a difference. Uh, I remember one episode that happened in the DA's office, and this was a learning experience for me. Uh, when I first started working in the misdemeanor section, uh, I interviewed two ladies, a mother and a daughter, who claimed he had been assaulted by a neighbor. And the story didn't quite make sense to me. And I went ahead and 
told them that I felt that I needed to interview the neighbors to find out what their end of the story was. Whereupon they jumped on me. They literally jumped on me, attacked me. They had long fingernails. <laughs> Even today, in one of my arms, I can still see the scars from that attack. Uh, I didn't want to file any charges. I knew the press would gobble that up and run with it like crazy. But uh, anyway, they got out of there, and I, I, let, I walked out that day in the office, and I showed my arm, and I was bleeding for both arms badly. <laughs> That's a little bit different. <laughs> you know, John, I've I've had uh, three occasions, and my uh, I've I've only been doing this for forty years. You've been doing it for sixty, but I've had a few occasions where where people followed me out of the courthouse all the way to my truck. And I didn't know exactly what their intentions were, but they, they didn't appear to be good. So did you ever have anything like that where either in your, your criminal practice or later in your civil practice where someone uh, was mm, unhappy with how you had behaved and, and are, are perceived how you behaved and, and made you feel a little uncomfortable? Well, I went to a social event some years later, and we were seated at a table with a bunch of really fine lawyers. But there was one person, there was a stranger, and he looked familiar to me, and I couldn't quite figure out who he was. So I asked him, I said, do I know you from somewhere? He said, yes, you know me. You should remember me. You sent me to prison. And wow. I said, uh oh, this guy's looking trouble. So I said, would you excuse me while I go to the restroom? And I was gone. <laughs> yeah, the, well, the, old, the old Irish goodbye. Well, getting back to get, getting back to the courthouse in, in the 1960s, and maybe you could just kind of broaden it and take us through what you remember about significant changes in the courtrooms or courthouse. I know that we went to the, the civil, uh, the civil courts went to a, a central docket system at one point under judge Casa, but tell us a little bit about uh, being a young lawyer. Once you transitioned over into the, the civil side of things. Well, one thing that stands out in my memory uh, was a, uh, message that was posted in Judge Richard Wood courtroom. I believe it was a, well, I can't remember the number. This was after the Supreme Court ruled that lawyers could begin to advertise. Judge Wood posted a message in the clerk's office that said this, lawyers who advertise are not welcome in this courtroom. <laughs> <laughs> and he made no buts about his feeling about advertising. Yeah, I think a lot of people would agree with that. I still, quite frankly, I've never advertised, and I, I don't personally, I personally can't do it. I just, I'm not comfortable doing it. On the, on the civil side, John, you spent most of your career, um, you know, on, 
on what side of the docket and representing what type of clients? Uh, most of the cases I handled were on the plaintiff side of the docket. I did do some defense work, but I'd say maybe five or 10% of it. Did you grow up here in San Antonio? Yes, sir. Born and raised here. I've lived here all my life. Where did you go to high school? Central Catholic. Great. High here in San Antonio. And where'd you go to law school? St. Mary's University. I, stay, I was all, I was all my schooling was here in San Antonio. Wow. Well, getting back to the, the, the courthouse in the 1960s and 1970s, were there any uh, judges that you that really stuck out in your mind as, as ones that you really admired? Yes, sir. Uh, in particular, Judge Nice, a man, he started out as a criminal defense lawyer and later became a district judge. And Judge Man, for whatever reason, took me under his wing. So if I had, uh, for example, an examining trial, uh, he would meet with me afterwards and he would critique me and he would help me. And I had another lawyer in town, a great, a wonderful condemnation, eminent domain lawyer by the name of Park Street. And I Park, ended up- That was Park, Park Street? Park Street. I ended Park up- Park Street, I remember the name. Park Street. Um, he was a former city mayor, and uh, but he was a terrific lawyer. And I didn't know at the time when I went to work for Mr. Street. Uh, I was in my senior law school year. And, uh, but he had always wanted to have a son. I think I became his adopted son. Mm -hmm. He treated me like I said, and everywhere. And the importance of older lawyers helping young lawyers comes to mind here. And those two guys, those two men, I think did more for me and hmm. elevating my confidence in what I was doing than any other people that I can think of by name. You know, John, I can remember as a younger lawyer um, wondering how to, you know, make a connection with the judges or um, somehow so that the judges would remember me or um, or whatever, just so you could be a more effective trial lawyer. Um, how, how did you do that in your career? How did you main, establish and maintain good relationships with our judiciary over the years? Well, one of the things that I did was after I had a hearing or a trial, I would go back in chambers if the judge was free. And I would talk to him about what had happened there. Invariably, I would get suggestions and recommendations and things I could have done or perhaps should have done. And it was very helpful to me. Uh, I don't know what the judges do that nowadays or not. It hadn't happened to me any time recently, but it, it was, I think they, because I was young, they were happy to do it at that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's always, um, it's always one of those things that uh, you just kind of learn as you go along in your career. Uh, and that is, you know, what's the most effective way um, to present your cases to the various judges 
um, did you did you get involved with any uh, political campaigns uh, for judges over the years, or did you try to stay away from that? I tried to stay away. I even thought at one time about running for judgeship, but I frankly uh, I didn't like the idea of having to go out and ask lawyers and other people for mm-hmm. money. Sure. I sure. just wasn't comfortable with that. So I, I stayed probably where I belong, which was in the practice of law. Well, well let, me, let me ask you this. If, uh, you know, Judge Judge Holman, um, <laughs> if you were judge, what, what would be your worst uh, attribute that, that people coming in your courtroom would be afraid of? Oh, like, oh, no, I got to go see Judge Holman because what? Mm, I would hope I would never fall in that category because <laughs> with all the help that I received from judges, I would hope that I would lend whatever attributes or information I had to others freely. I would hope I would be that kind of judge. Mm. Well, have you had any uh, notorious, uh, you got any notorious judge stories over the years? Anything that's... Um been in anybody's courtroom? Do you ever get chewed out for anything? I uh, I was trying a case in uh, uh, one of the judges' courtrooms. I won't mention his name. And uh, sometimes I like crack a little joke. I <laughs> I was tempted. That's part of my nature, I guess. And uh, I cracked a joke there in front of the jury and everybody laughed and the judge said, I'm calling a recess. And uh, he turned to me and he said, Holman, what you said was funny. Don't you ever do it again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, well, back in those days, did you even have air conditioning in the courthouse? Uh, yes, most of the uh, courtrooms that I, I recall were air-conditioned, yes. Okay. Well, I remember when I started uh, practicing uh, early on that I would walk into uh, Judge Jim Onion's courtroom and there'd be a big old spittoon there. And, you know, I didn't really know that uh, that kind of behavior was allowed in courtrooms. But... Uh, it's what we do in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> Not overtly, usually anymore, at least. Yeah. <laughs> but but it's my understanding that the ashtrays were everywhere and, and it was common to smoke in court. Is that your recollection? That's true. I was not a smoker, but uh, <clears throat> oftentimes uh, those who did like smoke did so. And nobody seemed to think anything worse of it. You mean like during trials and hearings? Yes. Huh. And was the jury allowed to smoke? I I can't recall that issue ever coming up, and I don't recall ever seeing a juror actually smoking. Hmm. Well, what can you tell us about any any unusual things or surprises that happened when you were in a jury trial? One of the things that happened, uh, uh, we had an exhibit which was a life-size 
skeleton. And uh, we use that in our personal injury cases quite frequently to help demonstrate injuries. And we were trying to case, I think it was in front of Judge John Yates, if I remember right. And it was, the skeleton was right next to the jury box. I believe one of the jurors accidentally nudged the skeleton. But when the skeleton moved, at least six jurors jumped up. <laughs> <laughs> Terrified, I guess, that the skeleton had come alive. And, and of course, we, we ended up taking a break there, but it was ended up with a good laugh for all. <laughs> it didn't start out that way. Oh, that's good. Um, well, if, if you're handling uh, mostly personal injury cases, or mostly on the plaintiff side over the years, uh, I know you've had a lot of trials, but but I also know you you had to you had to reach settlement in way way more uh, of those times than you did the trial. So, how do you uh, how do you remember the negotiations? back in the old days, say in, in the in the 60s and the early 70s, how are they different than negotiations today? Well, you know, I guess each of the defense lawyers are different and they have different ways of approaching. Sometimes they liked select a jury and if they felt like they had a favorable jury, they might be more inclined to go forward with a trial. Sometimes they might have felt otherwise that maybe it was a quote plaintiff's jury. And those cases usually ended up in settlement. There was a lot of cases that were settled in the middle of trial. And that, you know, depending on how the case seems to be shaping up in the opinion of the lawyers. And, and uh, I remember uh, one case I was selecting a jury on, it was an animal in the road type of case. And the uh, I made a comment to the jury, a little joke that I should never have done. <laughs> when I said, uh, the defense theory seems to be that the cow in question jumped over the fence You've all heard the story of the cow that jumped over the moon. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> okay. So there was a nun sitting in the front row of the jury. And she said, uh, Mr. Holman, she raised her hand. I said, yes, it was a nun. And she said, I'm from Ireland. And cows jump over the fences all the time. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> and George Fetcher had the break said, well, what are you going to do now, John? I said, we're going to settle this case. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I bet there were, um, I bet there were some coffee shops and restaurants, diners, bars where um, a lot of business used to get done, settlements would get made and negoti negotiations. You remember any notable places that lawyers would hang out over the years? Yes, there was a restaurant uh, about a block 
uh, east of the Cortez, I'm trying to remember the name of it, had a lot of lawyers and judges went to at the end of the workday and we could sit there and tell stories and could have a beer or, or just something to eat, whatever. Uh, I do remember one case that everyone thought uh, the jury was going to come back real quickly on in the DA's office. And we went over to the, to the restaurant, ordered a beer. Nothing happened. Four hours later, nothing happened except we were all having too much to drink. <laughs> and the jury was out deliberating. Finally, uh, about midnight, we got word the jury got a verdict. We went back to the courtroom and uh, Judge Onion, Jack Onion, Jim Onion, his name was mentioned earlier, uh, here in the case. And uh, we were all having a little difficulty maintaining some semblance of, <laughs> of sobriety. And finally, the jury did make the announcement. They found the defendant guilty after lots of deliberations. But I was, I learned a lesson never start drinking until you know <laughs> the case is all over with <laughs> well I've, I've heard some stories over the years that sometimes <clears throat> they might that sometimes some of the judges might have started a little earlier than that maybe sometimes even at lunch uh you it was i, I think the red carpet was a uh was a uh, frequent place for some some judges and lawyers, but do you remember anything like that being a, an issue? Yes. I remember uh, one evening, uh, Roy Brock, a great friend, and I think one of your former associates, Fred, as I recall. That's right. Uh, uh, he liked to meet over there after work and talk about cases. And so uh, uh, Mr. Brock called me and we went over there. And uh, we talked about it and we, we left the bar about 10 o'clock. So the next morning, seven o'clock, phone rings. And Roy said to me, he said, John, we got our case settled last night, didn't we? I said, yes, we did, Roy. And he said, uh, what did we settle it for? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Roy, I don't have a clue. <laughs> and I didn't. <laughs> we finally talked about it some more. We got it worked out. <laughs> wow. Well, well, speaking of Roy Brock, um, when I when I first told you or asked you about doing this this kind of uh, interview, I mentioned to you that Roy Brock was was my sort of mentor when I first started. After I got out of a. a, a internship with uh we just called it law clerk with judge adrian spears but uh, roy was a real uh, uh he was a great trial lawyer and i think you had a story about about something where you weren't even the lawyer involved but roy brock was involved and in something out on west avenue or some kind of situation that came up do you remember that i do um let's see here Trying to put my mind together here again. Um, 
Roy was defending a case and uh, a lawyer on the other side whose name I do not recall on the plaintiff's side called me one day and he said, John, I understand you have some information and it might be a valuable case. And I lived right next to the landfill area where the litigation was involved. And uh, I had written a letter to the owner and warning him that if fence was not put in place, that it could, could cause a dangerous situation for a child, especially there was lots of youngsters that lived in the neighborhood. And uh, he said, um, at that day and time, you didn't have to disclose witnesses. There were cases that were tried. This was one difference. Cases were tried without uh, depositions or discovery sometimes. And uh, so, I, so he said, I'm going to call you as a witness. And you're going to disclose that like the letter said that this was a dangerous condition that existed and that the owners already testified in, in some discovery they did that, that he had no knowledge of the dangerous condition. And I said to him, I said, well, wait a minute, Who, who's on the other side of the case? He said, well, Roy Brock is. I said, well, I, I barely know Mr. Brock at this point, but I know he's a very distinguished lawyer in town. And uh, I said, I'm, I'm not, I don't like the idea of sneaking up on somebody like that and hurting him or, or his case. So I said, I'm going to alert Mr. Brock what's going on. And I did. I picked up the phone and I called Roy. I told him and Roy said, send me a copy of the letter. And he knew then it was a case he had to settle and he did so. But the idea of doing something like that to Brother Lawyer quite frankly offended me. And uh, I just didn't want to be a part of that. Hmm. Interesting. John, what do you What's been one of your secrets for getting along with lawyers over the years? I find that that it's, you know, of course it's harder with some lawyers than others. And it's certainly very easy with other lawyers uh, to get along and be civil. Um, but what advice do you have for, for younger lawyers coming up who are trying to navigate how to be civil and be a, be a good trial lawyer? Okay. Well, number one, I'd say it's important to keep the lines of communication open. Number two, be, tell the truth. <laughs> you shouldn't have to say that about law profession, but unfortunately, there are some out there, few and far between, but there are some who don't. And I believe being having a reputation for being honest and straightforward goes a long way. If the other side knows that you can be trusted, and if I know they can be trusted, and there are lawyers out there like Charlie Smith is one of the great lawyers here in this town with the old gross lock firm. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, Charlie and I have had wonderful, uh, wonderful relation. He's one of my best friends. He learned like it. Guys on the defense side are guys that I truly respect and get along with. I'm able to work those kind of cases out with those people. And uh, I think it makes a world of difference. Yeah, I think sometimes lawyers have trouble and I don't want to just refer to other people. Sometimes it, you know, even, I mean, I have the same concerns sometimes I want to be straightforward. I want to be honest, but sometimes you know it it can come off as being soft or weak. And I think younger lawyers even have a harder time because they don't have as much experience. Um, how do you see that? The, the idea of appearing appearing weak if you don't always stick up for your client. I think a lot of it depends on the lawyers you're doing business with and the relationship you have with them. But for example, if I have a client that's told me a story that I wonder about, and I didn't have very many of those, but I had a couple of them over the years. I wondered about the the honesty of the individual. Uh, I would share that with, with another lawyer, especially if they brought it up that your client said such and such, and we're going to disprove that beyond the shadow of a doubt. And if, and if I say to that lawyer, well, you know, I've, I've had some questions in my own mind about it. That helps move the case towards settlement, I believe. Sure. Well, do you recall any, any uh, unusual things that happened during trial, things that you didn't expect, surprises? Well, yes. Let's see. I do want to share with you uh, a story regarding a criminal defense lawyer in town. His name was T.P. Henley. And T.P. Henley was a most unusual fellow. Uh, one of the things he did in his jury argument, he, he, he was blind in one eye. He had a glass eye. He would take his eye out, the glass <laughs> eye, put it on the, on the jury rail, and the people would come stare at Okay, And then he'd get down on his knees and start crying. And he'd cry <laughs> like a baby. Okay? And so... Uh, the guys in the TA's office knew that when he was given a jury argument, we wanted to be there. So this was part of his shtick, part of his routine that he would... He, he did would, it in every would, trial. <laughs> every trial. And uh, we, uh, it was showtime for us. And so Pat, that was what everybody called him and everybody loved the guy. Pat went through his pail and then he turned around and walked out of the room. And as he walked by us, sitting there in the courtroom, he came up to us and real quietly, he said, how'd it go boys? Did I do good? Did I do good? <laughs> and he walked on out and he left his client sitting there all by himself. And he, he did unorthodox things all the time. I want to share one another story about Pat Henley. 
uh, our office was on the ground floor at that time on Market Street. And we had people just drop in off the street. So the secretary comes up to me and says, the gentleman wants to talk to you. Okay, send him in. And so he said, uh, uh, first thing I need to tell you, I just cut out of prison. And I thought, well, this is a good sign. The guy's telling the truth. I like that. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and I said, well, how can I help you? He said, well, they took my brain. <laughs> I said, they took your brain? He said, yes. And I said, um, well, uh, that's, that's an area in which I'm not a specialty, but I know a lawyer who specializes in removal of brain cases. <laughs> I sent him over to Pat Henry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> About an hour later, I got a phone call. Holman, you sorry, no good. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, Pat, I'm going to make it up to you. That, that, that night, Pat and I went out on the town, and I treated him all night long. We hit every bar in downtown San Antonio, I guess, that night. That's uh, good. That's but really that, good. you know, getting along with other lawyers and friendship and what have you, to me, was the best part of the law profession, the part that I always enjoyed. And the guys that I fought hardest with in the courtroom ended up being some of my very best friends. And mm -hmm. I, I treasure those friendships. Yeah. Well, there, there's a saying uh, that, that comes all the way from Shakespeare that, that talks about uh, uh, do as adversaries do in the law, strive mightily, but eat and drink as friends. You, is, that, is that what you're talking about? Exactly. That's what I mean. We also had a group of us. There was three plaintiff's lawyers and three defense lawyers that would meet for lunch whenever we had a problem that we wanted to discuss as long as it did not involve the other person uh, who was present in, in the case in any way. And we had sworn secrecy, don't discuss this with anyone else. And everyone there honored it. And I would say, here's the problem I have, guys. What do you think I should do? A lot of times, defense lawyers had great responses, and really, truly, they helped me. Hmm. And and uh, I think six of us working together help one another. Sure. Well, that's great. You still having fun practicing law? I love it. I can't give it up. Uh, I know one of these days it's going to happen. I've still got one trial pending. There's been on the docket in, in uh, San Marcos for five years now. But uh, I've got younger lawyers that I work with to cover for me if something happened to me. Um, uh, I just turned 87 yesterday. Well, wow, and happy birthday. Thank you, but I love, I love the practice of law. I'm, I'm having a hard time giving it up. Well, uh, we're, we're, not, we're not asking you to give it up, so, so don't do it. What, what I was going to uh, ask you about, John, is um, you mentioned uh, an unusual thing that happened to you one time uh, or 
while you were there in, in a courtroom, a jury trial, and something happened uh, to the witness. Yes. We were trying a case, and there was a gentleman who was a uh, oil operator in San Antonio, well-known, and uh, my partner, Jim Hope, was questioning him, and it was a very mild cross-examination. But in the middle of this, this examination, all of a sudden, he stood up, and he fell over. And I rushed up there, and he fell into my arms. Oh my. He, had a, he had had a heart attack. Oh, goodness. He, and he died on the witness stand. Mm. Mm. I'll, never, I'll never forget that. What, what did the judge do? What? She declared a mistrial. It was the only, only thing he could do. The case was later settled. Jack Hebden was trying a case for the defense. Jack Hebden? Mm. One of the great lawyers here. Yeah. Canada. He sure, he sure was great man. Absolutely. Hmm. Wow. Well, let's 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 wrap this thing up a little bit, John. But I want to kind of wrap up by talking about um, your experience with uh, Aboda, since that's kind of how I became familiar with you. How how many years have you been a part of Aboda? Well, I came in about nineteen. 80, and so it would be had about 40 years or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. wow. And it's been 40 great years. A boat of about far and away is my favorite, all-time favorite professional organization. I, well, I, th I think a lot of us probably feel that way, but tell, tell us why. Well, you see people, you socialize with them, and you get to know them, not just as lawyers, but as human beings. And, and the friendships that I've generated from meeting with these people socially and business-wise has been a treasure for me. I put much rather than being with a plaintiff's organization like uh, not that I have anything against them, but I get more out of more personal satisfaction out of meeting with people in Aboda than any organization by far away. Yeah, ditto. I feel the same way. Okay. Hmm. Well, John, what, is there anything else that you want to share with us or share with the listeners who may be interested in knowing how you go about uh, having a successful practice of law and a successful marriage for over 60 years and still wanting to still wanting to do it at age 87. There's one thing I would recommend highly to all young lawyers, and that is to go to work for a governmental agency. You will earn lots of stuff in a very short period of time, just like those 50 jury trials I had. <laughs> uh, I could not get that experience anywhere mm -hmm. except at the expense of a client. And and so the DA's office, the city attorney's office, uh, the uh, state adjutant general's office, those are all wonderful places to get experience. The other thing is 
feel free to call on uh, lawyers who have been around for a while and for ideas and for weighted ways to do things. And most lawyers and myself included and, and you guys, you men, are more than happy to share your experiences your, and, the, and the experience that you have had as a lawyer in the courtroom, in the office and otherwise, are happy to share those experiences and give the younger people uh, the benefit of that experience. I think, I think that I got more like I mentioned uh, Judge and East Man and, and Park Street both. And uh, they were wonderful trainers for hmm. me, exemplars. That's awesome, John. Uh, yeah, I, I have found that to be true in, in my practice as well. And, and I think that you're right, that uh, most lawyers don't even know that other lawyers would be willing to help with uh, trouble as it, as it comes up from time to time. Well, uh, before we wrap up, I, I wanted to ask you, is there any particular case uh, that you're uh, particularly proud of, the result that you had, not necessarily monetarily, but for whatever reason, it gave you a lot of satisfaction the way it uh, ended up getting resolved? There was a trial down on the border in Del Rio back in, I think it was... 1979, if I remember, and it involved a gas explosion. And uh, it was a sad case because the injuries and the damages were so horrible and unbelievable. Uh, 16 deaths, as I recall, and at least another 15 people were burned horribly. Um, and that was the first time I showed up in the burn ward at the Mamsia Hospital. And uh, just when I walked out of there, I was in tears. The trial itself lent itself to a heartbreak. And it took three months trial and ended up during Christmas season. We had a magnificent result, but it was a close call nonetheless because we had about seven or eight theories of liability and the jury really only bought into one of them. It was a close call from that perspective. Uh, but it was a large jury verdict. I think it was the biggest one in the country at that time. Of course, it involved lots of people. Was that the was that the Surtigas case? S U R T I G A S. It's Surtigas case. Yes. Hmm. Yeah, you can still uh, you can still Google that name Surtigas, S U R T I G A S, and it'll uh, take you directly to the stories about that horrible uh, situation. And I think Lubbock Manufacturing was the. Uh, I think Damon Ball maybe and, and Lubbock Manufacturing was the one that was the target of that uh, or ended up being the target of that lawsuit. I know a lot of lawyers went down there on uh, back and forth uh, 
with with files in their trunks of the cars and and staying at a, at a hotel uh, many times staying in the same hotel as the other lawyers does that ring a bell with you absolutely yep that, that was exactly uh, we were staying at uh, i was staying at the holiday inn and there were several lawyers on both sides of the case that were there and uh you know, there was another case I had. It was a small case um, that I got great satisfaction. I've been involved in a pawn shop. And the issue involved, the item had been pawned for um, X dollars and then it was sold before the, the owner had an opportunity to redeem it. But it was only worth about $250. And Judge Gene Williams asked me when we took a little break, he said, why is this case being tried in the district court? And I said, well, I'm seeking uh, exemplary damages. And he said, well, okay. So anyway, the jury came back. They awarded, I think it was $256 for the item, but $25,000 in exemplary damages. And I got more kick out of that jury verdict I guess hardly any other case I uh, could recall. Wow. Well, those those are, are great uh, memories and great uh, things for for lawyers to hear. Uh, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you would like to say to us? Is before we uh, let you go and enjoy the the Christmas uh, holiday season? Well. First of all, I'm deeply honored that you even wanted to interview me, uh, and uh, I tickled Mick to do it, uh, and I'm hoping that whatever I've said may be of some benefit, especially to our younger lawyers. Um, maybe some ideas that I floated would, would be of benefit to them, and I hope it will be that way. I wish all of them good luck. Be good lawyers, be good men, and uh, it'll all work out just fine for everybody. Well, the honor is ours, John. Thanks for taking the time. Um, you're a credit to our profession for sure. And so cheers to you and Mary. Um, Merry Christmas to you, and uh, we'll see you around the courthouse. God bless you all. Bye -bye. Thank you, John. Wow. Um, how about John Holman? I thought that was great. I'm really glad you lined him up, Fred. He's a, he is a legend. John is a real class act. If you know a great lawyer that you think we should interview, let us know and we'll be uh, happy to take that into consideration. We're pretty easy to find. Meanwhile, may all of your objections be sustained. May the judges see things your way.